Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm John Snow and this week's guest is Wa'ad Al-Khatib. And I'll confess something, I know her, because I've worked professionally alongside her at Channel 4 News. Wa'ad is a BAFTA-winning and Oscar-nominated filmmaker. Born in Syria, Wa'ad left home at 18 to study at the University of Aleppo. In 2011, she began shooting video on her phone while attending pro-democracy protests. Wa'ad went on to document the next five years in Aleppo, capturing life, loss and emergency care in the besieged city, as well as the birth of her first daughter. Wad wanted the world to know what was happening, and when Channel 4 News shared her reports, they were seen by millions of people. When she finally had to leave Aleppo, Wad began turning hundreds of hours of footage into the documentary For Sama. Now based in London, Wad campaigns to raise awareness of the crimes committed under President Assad's regime, as well as the global refugee crisis. And in her new film, We Dare to Dream, she turns her lens on five incredible athletes as they strive for a place on the Olympic refugee team. Let's find out more. Wahad, when you left home at 18 to study at Aleppo University, your parents didn't want you to take media studies as your course. Why was that? In Syria, we lived in oppression country. And the media we have, we had only one media school. And that media school was very well known by being controlled by the government. Everything you have to do is controlled by them, by their agenda, for what's going to go in their benefit. And any social work, even like, you know, community work, considered as like you're crossing a line and you're thinking, you will have impact and that would make a problem for them. So they were very worried about me because I'm a little bit headstrong and they thought if I'm going to do this, it was going to end up with me in jail the next day. <laughs> they weren't far wrong. Yes, no, not at all. <laughs> Had you been drawn to activism before university? I mean, what inspired you to join the pro-democracy protests and then start filming? Yeah, I think it was something I was picking up since I was very young. I lived in a really nice family and we were really open to each other. We had conversation at home, but also we were very well taught that any conversation happened at home should not happen outside this place. This is the only safe place. And even with that, we've been raised on some phrase like, the walls have ears. Mm. 
And something like if you dream of something against the regime, they will find out, even if it's only in your dreams. So there was a lot of awareness how much different is between what we want to do at home and the world outside. So when the Syrian revolution started, I had no question. I wasn't hesitated. It was so clear for me where I want to be and what I want to do. Before the revolution, the only thing for me was like, I'm going to finish my study and then leave to Germany or somewhere else outside where I can live my life as I want. But when the Syrian revolution started, we had hope. We thought, you know, we can do something. We can change our life. We can change our country. We can belong again to here and feel like this is our community. And I think that's what so many Syrians felt like, you know, now we are different. We see each other. We hear each other. We can speak. And that's the revolution for us. What was the narrative in the state news reports at the time? So we were going out in peaceful protest, chanting for freedom, for dignity, for equality. And we've met with so much violence. We've been arrested in the street. We've been shot directly in the street. And every time there was protest, the state TV was saying, like, there was nothing. And it was just so clear for us the way they were denying this and then how they were calling us terrorists, germs, calling us rats, you know, like so many things. And we were just Syrian people who dreamt of something new, something different. How did you feel when Channel 4 News, which I used to work for too, started sharing your reports? That was a very different point in my life, I think, because... I was in Syria. I was at that time maybe like 25. We were about to be besieged by Russia and the Syrian regime. And we used to have some foreign journalists who were coming in and out. At that time, the borders were closed and we've been left alone in that area. And then that's when my contact with Channel 4 News started. And I did a very beautiful report about a boy who was 11 years old who created Aleppo with like papers and just dreaming of how this life could be if there's no war. And I do remember when that story went out on Channel 4 News and then I saw it on YouTube and that was by your voice. <laughs> you were narrating that. And that's when I think millions of people seen that report. And before that, I used to cover for like local channels. So my impact was just around the community around me. But this is the first time I was able to reach people in different language who have maybe never been in Syria or they don't know even enough about Syria. And that changed a lot to me. Like, I found more meaning. I found more hope that I can change something. You know, I can deliver messages and the world outside, the leaders of that world, who can really do something different, they might hear it and they might do something. Why were you so unique? Why hadn't others come forward in any number to tell the stories you told us? I think we were very overwhelmed by the violence we've been living through. And so many people, even myself, we were just following massacres, people being killed, front lines, you know, bombing, battles. With all of this violence, we were not able to notice the life underneath all of this. And for some reason, I don't know why, but like I started to feel this. And maybe I know why, I, because I was a mother, because I was a woman who living there. So I started to look at this in different ways because I wanted a way out as a meaning. You know, I wanted to feel that with all this death, with all this destruction around me, I want to live. I want to find this hope. And that hope for me was these stories I've done 
which is, I think, was yeah, very different for the people outside because people knew we had war in Syria, but no one really realized how much life and love we had underneath all of this. I'm just thinking about how conflicted you must have felt. You know, recording the loss and the suffering of others, there's a powerful moment in your 2019 documentary when a grieving mother looks straight into your camera and asks, are you filming? Yeah. Yes. Did she want you to film or want you not to film? She she was conflicted. Or she as, wanted both. She was conflicted at the same second exactly. Like this woman, she was just lost her six-month boy, mm. Ala. His name is Ala. And she wasn't in her mind, I think, at that second. She looked at me and she said, are you filming? And for a second, I thought she doesn't want me to film. If you see that scene, like I was filming her and then I put the camera down a little bit. I was about to turn it off. When she starts shouting again, film, film, let all the world see this, why they did this to us, why they are doing this to us. So I turned my camera up again and I was filming. I think this was happening in all of our minds. Everyone was living there. We had so many conflict into like, why are we doing this? Is there really a meaning of this? Maybe someone would see this. Maybe this would be different. Maybe these pictures will change the game, you know? Like maybe we would survive because of this. And at the same time, we were very worried that this is just another clip and another number of casualties in the news. You know, like people just see like numbers, 100, 300. Um, So we had that conflict all the time, but I'm glad I didn't give up at that time. I was feeling down in so many places and so many times But also, I think that's the only way for me that I was able to survive and keep going because I wanted to do something. I wanted to change this situation. And that's my only way for that. You ended up sheltering in a hospital with your husband, a newborn, Sama, sandbags against the windows. Just how many years did you live in Aleppo? So I lived in Aleppo since 2011 when the revolution started until 2016, when we were forced to flee. It was five years, yeah. The siege stayed for six months. That was the proper siege when everything was cut off, like Gaza situation today. And then it ended up with being forcibly displaced by Russia, the Syrian regime, the UN, and other stakeholders in the area. You believe that President Assad's regime deliberately targeted your hospital? Yeah, I have evidence of that uh, for years, not just like one time. But was this about breaking the people's spirits? Or do you think that Hamza became a target? After all, he kept emergency care going in East Aleppo. Yeah, like every doctor, every nurse, everyone who was doing anything meaningful in that situation was a target for the regime because they didn't care about the land. They didn't care about the people, but they just wanted to do is to win. I was a target myself and I tried so hard to like protect my name, my family. And I did everything I could have done when I was there because I knew how powerful was these images and how much the regime was feeling bad about making the world outside see who we are, you know? Mm. We're not tourists. He kept saying we are tourists. We were not tourists. We were civilians. We were people who believed in our right, in our country. We wanted to change that situation. And, you know, all these things were evidence against what he was claiming. And again, like similar attacks happened in Ukraine, 
in hospitals in Ukraine. Now same things happening in Gaza with the hospitals being bombed in Gaza. So it's same playbook, I think. The whole game was like, and the goal was to break people well. And that's the point. We could see how they wanted to break your spirit specifically, partly because it was very clear that they were going after your husband. Yeah. Hamza was a was a target. Yes, yeah. Like pictures, names, number, phone numbers sometimes, family members sometimes. It's not like surprising for us because in Syria with this regime who've been controlling for decades, we've seen people who've been killed or their family's mm-hmm. member been arrested, been tortured to death. We have 11,000 pictures of people who were detained and tortured to death. And these pictures were out on media everywhere and people were, were looking at this. So we knew that this is, would be the price of speaking up, of doing what we're doing. But if we didn't, and if other people didn't, how we would change this reality? But in many ways, you're describing how it is that Assad, the dictator, has been able to hang on for so long. Yeah, yeah. And also being, after all these years, 12 years since this happened, today Assad is invited to COP28, the environment conference in the Emirates. And he's talking about, you know, protecting Earth and protecting environment. After he'd been using chemical weapons, he'd been destroying culture and history and future. And some countries and some governments are going toward normalization, inviting him again to conversations, you know, which is really disappointed. Why is the Assad regime so efficient? I mean... It's done that to you, but it's doing it to the whole population because you're, I think, perfectly correctly stating that plenty of other people felt the same way as you did, but he somehow kept his show on the road. Yeah, I mean, it's again about power. This is like his father controlled our country for like 30 years and then he came again for 20 years and now it's another year. It's 60 years by the same family. (laughs) No one is interested to put him on trial or like talk about justice. Maybe that, yeah, everyone is talking about justice, but no one doing any real actions toward that. If we were talking about Saudi Arabia, we'd say, well, well, it's perfectly obvious. These people in charge have a stranglehold over the oil industry and the rest of it. What is it that keeps Assad in power? Is it just weapons or wealth or what? I think it's, uh, I mean, without Russia, he would never be in power until today. Russia. So, yeah, so there's definitely influence by that. And Russia has now military bases in Syria. Russia has the right to use the coast of Syria for the next 50 years. Like, they rent all the coast. Also, the Iranian government and the militia, the Iranian revolutionary militia from Iran, also they have now military bases in Syria I think it's the Russia, Iran, and Syria triangle. Mm. So even like when Russia invaded Ukraine, there was militias coming out from Syria. They went to Ukraine. They were fighting with Russia against the Ukrainian people. So, you know, like they, they're using this power some way or another. They they don't really think of the people, the Why land. didn't we hear more about that? I think or did I miss it? No, no, no. You you didn't miss it. There's not enough talking about this, unfortunately, yes. And Russia keep denying all of these things. It's shocking. No, but Assad considered the country as 
his farm. You know, like we're all animals in this place. Like he is the owner of this country. Everything he can use for his benefit to stay in power and be able, you know, to just control everything. And the system is helping. Everything his father built is helping as well. But do you see ways in which he could yet be removed? I don't think all of us collectively can do something. If the leaders of the world who can do something, they don't really care. Yeah. You lost friends in the awful aggression and and destruction. Was there any point before the rebels surrendered when you seriously thought about leaving? There were so many moments where I was questioning a lot what the point of staying. and Especially now you had a, a daughter. Yeah, especially when I, when I had my daughter. But I think I've never wanted to leave. And even now, after all these years, after everything we've been through, I regret leaving. I want to be back. I'm trying so hard to accept my life here, to accept that this is how it should be. But the displacement, exactly that decision of leaving without being even our decision, you know, like we were forced to leave. There was no other option. We hmm. die or we leave. That's that's the options we had, which is not an option. I think that that moment like changed my entire life. Nothing after displacement like before. Just the fact that today now my daughters are seven and eight years old. They don't know how my home looked like. We're not allowed to be back. We're not allowed to live the life that we wanted to live. Okay, our life here is good. We're happy. They are happy. But just that, you know, feeling of not knowing home. One of my daughters, I was pregnant with her when we left Aleppo. She doesn't even been in Syria, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. just for a second. And that's really hurting. That's hurting again when we see Assad who's killing us and bumming us, being able to control the country, being able to go outside and talk and, you know, pretend that nothing of this happened. And we, as refugees now, we're not allowed to go back. When you eventually left Aleppo and sat down to edit your documentary for Sama, just how much footage did you actually have? Yeah, so I had over 300 Hours of footage. My God. And it was just interesting because I think we spent two years editing these materials. And until today, there's still so many stories. Didn't make it to the film. And, you know, like so many people still suffering in different ways, unfortunately, as as we speak today. So I think these materials are a living evidence of, of so many things happened and still happening. You address your daughter, Sama, directly in the narration of your documentary. You want her to understand why you stayed in Aleppo. Are you nervous about her watching this film when she's old enough? Or do you still know that you do exactly the same thing again? Yeah, I will definitely do the same things again myself. And I think she would do the same thing again. How old is she? She's eight now and she knows enough about that. She hasn't seen the entire film. She's seen only the trailer and she... I I don't know when. I am definitely nervous a lot for her to watch it. Mm. But I think, yeah, she will one day. And in a way, that's what persuaded you to make the film. Yes, of course. I want them to know what happened. I want to save everything happened, bad and good. Pain and love. And I want them really to remember Aleppo in the way how we loved it. It's... What makes the name of the film, For Summer, 
so very touching and very emotional. You wanted to build empathetic responses to the situation in Syria and draw attention to the actions of Assad's regime. How important was it to win at the BAFTAs and then have a global platform on the Oscars? Yeah, it was amazing. It was really amazing. But what was really difficult at that time, the atrocities were still happening. And like as we were on the BAFTA stage, there was bombing in Syria at the same second. So everything meant much more than, you know, making a film and doing something. Like we wanted people to know what was still happening. And we wanted people to know that this story was not just something happened four years ago. This is happening today as we speak. But it was amazing because, yeah, it gave me platforms. It gave me voice. It gave me a lot of opportunities to be able to talk about Syria for people who doesn't know Syria, maybe, who they don't really even care about it. And they had to care because they were listening, you know, to me in so many places. So it was really, really important. You had the words, we dared to dream and we will not regret dignity, embroidered on your dress at the Oscars. And this phrase returns in the title of your documentary. It must be important to you. Yes, it's very important to me because I think in the lowest moment of my life, when I was feeling I will not make it, I thought of why I've done this and why I had my daughter in a field hospital in the basement with my husband under all this shelling and bombing. And the point for me was our dignity. The message I wanted to deliver at the Oscar that we as Syrians, we dare to dream and we will never regret this dream, which was the revolution. And after making for Sama and being able to move forward for my next project, I wanted to do something to continue my journey, do something to bring hope, to be like uplifting, to bring message around us as refugees around the world, facing, you know, all this like stereotypes and propaganda and uh, laws that make us different and make us not who we are. And that's why I felt we dared to dream by being in the revolution, and now we dare to dream every single day for a better life and for a better future for us and for our kids. And this represents over 100 million refugees all over the world. Every one of us left for different reason. Each one of us speak different language. We left people behind. We left families. We left our dreams. and But yet, we all have the same shared experience, even when it's different. The same message. We all, we dare to dream and we are dreaming and we have to keep dreaming. You have to dare because the truth is, it's dangerous to be doing this. Do you take care of yourself? And do you protect the family even here in Britain? Yeah, it's it's really dangerous and I'm aware of that for sure. But I think also there's something more encouraging me and pushing me to do more, which is the reason why I survived. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. What actually inspired We Dare to Dream? This film's not just giving a voice to Syrians. It's refugees from Cameroon, Iran, Sudan. Yes. It's amazing because, you know, when I met these people who are refugees from different countries, it was so clear for me that we look different. We speak different languages. Sometimes we can't even understand each other, you know, like there's so many things different. But I was so impressed how many things we can connect and how can we like touch each other and understand each other's experience because we had to do one thing, you know, we had to leave everything behind at some point for various reasons, and we had to look forward. We had to look for a better future. And whether that was someone in Iran or someone in Cameroon or someone in South Sudan, whether we were seven years old or like 30 years old or 80 years old, there was something difficult we had to choose and we had to make, and we did. And we started everything we left behind from scratch, again, just for for a better future. What inspired you? I think my own experience as a refugee, like I came to the UK in 2018 in the middle of making for summer. And these two, three years after that, I was not able to reflect on what does it really mean to be a refugee. I was still feeling I'm in Syria. I was still so much into every single news happening every day. So I couldn't really experience or like understand even my process of being a refugee. So when I met these guys, when I started to know like their stories, the backstories, their dreams and what they are thinking of, there was a lot of shared experience and shared moments where I felt, you know what, like they are helping me now to come over my feeling of not accepting my new home. And I think a lot of pain and stories we've had to reveal to each other, it helped me to create hope, to be able to like hang on all my strength on my daughter's right to live again in a safe place and just like give me more strength, I think, to keep going and to have a voice again in a different way. It's hard to pick out any one story in your film because all five athletes are inspiring, utterly inspiring. But let's start with Cyril. Yeah. Can you tell me about him? So Cyril is a weightlifter and he is a nurse, a mental health nurse in the UK. He came to the UK when he was 17 years old and he didn't want to say why he became a refugee. And this is, I think, something was very important to me because I feel sometimes, as a refugee myself, everyone assumes that it's their right to know why I'm here. What's the story behind me? And sometimes... I'm a very open person. I always love to answer these questions. 
But sometimes I feel like I don't have that energy. I don't want to talk about it. I'm so hurt. I'm not comfortable at this moment. So when I asked Cyril, like, why did you become a refugee? His simple answer was, I don't want to talk about it. And I really respected that. And I really loved that. And I really wanted this idea to reflect in the film to tell people that you should not push on these people. You should respect their space and their mental health and their way of dealing with their past and what happened with them. So Cyril, when he came here, he started his life from scratch. He was in a very low point where he was about to commit suicide. And luckily, he was saved from this. But then that's when his actual journey started. He became a refugee here. He did university where he became a nurse, a mental health nurse, to help other people into recovery. And he was one of the athletes who went to the Tokyo Olympics and he performed amazingly there. It Um, must have been incredibly moving to see him carrying the flag and everything. He was amazing in everything, in every word he said. I've learned so much from him. He's very inspiring. and I have no doubt he's learned a lot from you too. I think I've learned more. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Cyril worked on the front line during COVID. Yes. You know, I mean, this is the main thing about being a refugee in such that circumstances. You came from so many places of pain and suffering and destruction and uh, sometimes really like low mental health situation. But he was able to thrive, to be able, you know, to give back to the community. He was able to help himself, to help other people. And yet he still has to fight every single day for his life. You capture the conflict some of the athletes feel competing against the countries they've left. Can you tell me about Kimia's first match, facing a friend and a former teammate? Yeah, she... I mean, honestly, that was one of the moments which I'm not able to understand until now. Like, if I want to do a fiction film and I wrote it like this, I would not believe it, you know? Like... The reality of this situation, the reality of our lives as refugees, where sometimes life put us in a place where no one can bear, no one can handle. You know, like she left her country years ago. She had to go through so many difficulties, so many situations. And the first match in Tokyo was against her own country. The coach with her teammate from Iran was her coach when she won the bronze medal for Iran. So like... It's not about just people she knows. It's a long history. It's people she loves, people she respects, people she miss as well. Who are now on the other side. Yes. And at the other side, even if these people were really good, even if these people, they really love Kimia and they love what she's been through and what she's done, Iran is watching. And, you know, like the Islamic Republic of Iran is watching. And that would not make it easy for anyone. So just for her to go through this, to fight all her fear, to fight all her her doubts, all her feelings, you know, and to be able to go through this match, it was just something unbelievable. And I really hope, I'm not going to say more because I want people to go watch it and, you know, see what is the outcome of that match because I think it's really, really emotional and hard to believe. Watch it, folks. The Tokyo Olympics were delayed by a year because of COVID, and even then the athletes had to compete without crowds. Was it important for you to be right there beside them as they took part? 
Definitely. Like, it was weird because I've never been into, uh, at the Olympics before, but when we were looking at the archive before we go to Tokyo, it was so clearly that the crowd plays very big role into these competitions. And it really gives so much energy and so much love and support. But weirdly, we were thinking that even if the refugee team was at the Tokyo Olympics and there was a crowd, they had no crowd. You know, like there's no fan for the refugee team. Like the the team still Mm. knew everyone was going for their countries. And, you know, like it's going to be a really hard experience to face. So I think at some point I felt like it was good that it went that way because no one has crowd. So they became equal with other teams just with that, you know, like particular point. But it was very important for me to be there. I think for understanding the film, for understanding their situation, even for them, because I think you can hear my voice in the film shouting in so many places. <laughs> like, like I was there as a friend, as a family, not just as a filmmaker, you know, who's doing their stories. And it was really amazing to watch them closely competing. So what message do you want people to take from this film, from these five stories? I think this film is about representation. It's made about refugees by a refugee, which is myself, for other refugees. Mm. And I really want people to understand that in so many places we've been dealt with as either victims or villains. And in best case scenario, we're superheroes. You know, we are the extraordinary, the exceptional of our communities. And we're not actually. We are just the people who you were able to see. But Imagine how much people we've left behind, how much people and how much stories it's been untold until today. So I really hope that people can look at this film and see us as we are in our reality. And also, I hope refugees to look at this film and feel that... Will you be keeping in touch with the athletes? I mean, following the fortunes of those hoping to compete in Paris next year? Yes, definitely. I'm so excited and I can't wait to be there and to cheer for them, like the Tokyo Olympics. And also, I really hope everyone who's listening and everyone who's going to watch the film to join us to be one of the fans of the Olympic refugee team. Brilliant. You want the international community to wake up to what you call a crisis of solidarity. And since 2018, you've been based here in London. Yes. How difficult is it to hear the rhetoric of the government around asylum and their boats policy. Yeah, it was very conflicting, I think, because, you know, you come here, you think there's a lot of values the public here carry and the government sometimes used to talk about. And then on the reality of what the government is doing, it's actually ruining and breaking all these values. And I still trying to make sense how this became this laws, floating prisons and sending people to Rwanda. But I think also there's still hope that the public is not supporting these laws. There's still hope that the Supreme Court last week rejected the Rwanda law. And I still believe that we can do more and more. And now I am part of this new community. I hope to do more for people like me. And I hope to set this conversation about our rights, you know, as a human being. Um, If we just looked at the world today and we saw how bad is it, I think we should learn the opposite of what governments here are doing and do more to each other 
with love, with less hate, with more like sympathy to each other. Do you find yourself in danger of having to go into politics? I hate politics. <laughs> I can't do it. I know. I'm I'm always going to be the filmmaker and the activist. It's a political desire to want the international community to wake up to what you call a crisis of solidarity. That is a political ambition. Yeah. Do you think there's any chance at any time that President Assad of Syria will ever be held to account? I don't see this as coming in the next couple of years, but I think that's the only thing I'm still living for. I want to do everything I'm doing. I'm just waiting for that moment because I think this is how life should be. This is how the world should function. If it's not like this, we're in a very big problem. Well, it's a big test. And, and the UN Human Rights Council has mandated an inquiry to investigate and record violations of international law by the Syrian regime. I think the UN is far too late on every step we are facing, unfortunately. There's so many issues. There's so many investigations. None of them went any place. And I think the UN itself, with their system, like they have so many issues. And we should rethink all these things we know. You know, the UN Security Council, the UN, all this big organization who's been functioning for years and it clearly, it's not working. I don't think there's any hope of something like that, no. Are you picking up influential allies as you proceed? I think my only allies and my only hope is people. Is public. I still believe, you know, that people are good and people can see the good in what we're talking about. And it's their benefits, you know, it's the future for their kids. I don't think any of us wants to live in this world or want our kids to, to live in this circumstances of this world we're living in now. Everything is going bad, if it's going worse. Hospitals being bombed, everyone is seems like fine with that. We continue our life every single day as if nothing happened while kids are being killed in front of cameras in, in other places. So I still have faith in people and I still think we can do something different. But like I don't think any hope in governments or in the UN or any of these systems. We see how upset you were to leave Aleppo in both films. How do you feel about your displacement now? I mean, you're here, a refugee yourself, in Britain. And do you still hope that one day you will return to Syria? I think the displacement moment was something changed my entire life and my entire perspective on everything. And I think that moment that really broke me. Yet, I think I still have hope and I still have a way to keep fighting in a different way. And that was for Sama at the first place, and then We Dare to Dream as a second film and the second way of fighting back. I still hope to go back to Syria, and I still hope that I can do more and do a lot to other people and to myself and to my kids. And I really hope this new film will change the conversation about refugees and will change also how refugees see themselves in films and in stories. Wahad Al-Khatib, this has been one of the most moving, but amazing interviews. And I'm so grateful to you for your honesty, your openness, and above all, for all that you're doing. Thank you. I just want to say one thing, which is 
when I was in Aleppo and I didn't think or imagine in my whole life that I would be here today, like where I am today. And this is not maybe good thing, you know, because I wanted to be in my country. I didn't want to leave. But at that point, when I heard your voice on the news over a footage I've done myself, and at that time I didn't know a lot of English, so I had to translate a lot of what you said. And the inspiration I had, not just from that one, because at that time I followed you, I saw everything you've done before, I've witnessed so many things you've done after, and it's been a privilege and it's been an honor in my life that I met you, that I know you personally, that I worked with you in the same office for a couple of months. And I'm so grateful for all the support that I've got from you personally and from all the team of Channel 4 News. I count it as one of the great privileges to have heard what you have to tell us. And pray God there is change. Thank you. That was the filmmaker Wa'ad Al-Khatib. We Dare to Dream will screen at select cinemas and on Curzon Home Cinema from the 1st of December. There are links to Wa'ad's new film and her 2019 documentary, For Summer, in the episode description. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. I'll be sharing another episode next week, so please subscribe on your platform of choice and spread the word. Tell your friends. Goodbye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.